Now, I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. This is a sermon series that we just started a few weeks ago. And we just finished the water into wine last week. So, this morning, I get to clear the temple courts. This is kind of exciting, right? Because this is the story of Jesus in the wit. So you think if there's ever a time for the pastor to bring out a prop and use it in the Sunday morning service, this would be the one, right? And then sure enough, you all sit far enough away that they wouldn't have reached anyway. Like even if I went to the kitchen and I grabbed an extension cord, like just as an example, there's no way. Like maybe in the front row, but there's no way I'd get anyone else with this extension cord. Hmm. I want to point something out to you. Even as we just open up our Bibles to John 2, something beautiful that I saw this week as I was preparing. Because John is so symbolic, you have to read it differently. You just can't read it the same as the other Gospels. Right? It's not a chronological biography. It's written later. It's written to a dispersed people. And the other Gospel stories have already been presented. This is written to draw people back to the identity of Jesus. So look for that in the stories. John doesn't need to display Jesus as a superhero, simply listing off supernatural event after supernatural event. That's already been done. He strategically uses his lessons and his stories to draw people back to his identity. Who was he? Because you can read the calming of the storm. You can read the multiplication of the food and go, wow, this guy's amazing. What a teacher. And John says, what a God. Do you notice that Jesus' very first miracle is only recorded in the Gospel of John, the changing of water into wine? And it might surprise you that when he performs this miracle, he doesn't take the wine bottles that all the wine would have appeared in for the wedding, fill them up full of water, and then transform it into wine. What vessel does he use? He uses the jars they would have used for the ceremonial washing. He takes those jars. He has them filled up with water because they were for the purification of the people. Because to join in a wedding ceremony, to be part of that kind of activity, people had to experience this cleansing before they joined. And Jesus fills those up. And he takes that water that was meant for cleansing and he transforms it into something brand new. And nobody knows. There's not a thousand people that follow him after this miracle. A few of the servants would have known. The master of the ceremonies, after he found out that this really good wine out of nowhere appeared, maybe he knew, but did anybody else? No. So the gospel writers don't seem to write it down, but John says, don't miss this, because Jesus is the new purification. He's created new wine in the place of this water. And instead of this water being what makes you pure in the presence of God, Jesus will be that path. It'll be his blood shed on the cross that's for the remission of your sin. Not water that you splash on your hands and on your face. It'll be Jesus that you believe in. So immediately following that, you have the cleansing of the temple. Which... Jesus clears out the temple and he says, if you were to knock this temple down and destroy it, I'd just raise it back up because that's the power that I have because this building isn't anything holy. I am the presence of God. This is where Yahweh dwells in the midst of his people. 
not this big brick building. It's me. I, my body, I am the presence of him in your midst. And if my body were destroyed, I'd raise it again. And my blood is for the forgiveness of sin. It purifies you. The first two big lessons, miracles here in the Gospel of John are symbols of communion. The blood and the body of Jesus. My body will be destroyed. The purification will come through my blood, not through this jar of water. Pay attention to these things. It's through Jesus that you're drawn back to the Father. John is laying these out. You look in the other Gospels and the clearing of the temple is at the very end. Because it takes place the week of Passover where he dies. So we have either two options. One, he did this twice. He did this years earlier at one Passover and then he does it again years later. But none of the other gospel writers record this second experience. So was it twice or was it just once? And if it was just once, why does John not record it just before Jesus dies? Why would he record it all these years earlier in the Bible? Like He throws off the path of Jesus' life by recording it in the second chapter. Why would John do that? Unless you need to understand something. That to understand water being transformed into wine, you need to understand the temple being cleansed. It will only make sense if they're side by side. Or you're going to learn something new if you read them together. That's where sometimes we break it up when we're preaching. And we preach one little story at a time. And you forget that if they sat down and read the scroll, they may have read all these stories in a row. This is pretty neat. All right, all right, all right, all right. You ready? You ready? You ready? You ready? You ready? John chapter 2, verse 13. Let's read some of the story together. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Pause for a second. That's him setting the stage. John wants you to know what Jesus saw the moment he showed up. Man, when I was practicing this sermon, this is the part where I got the most fired up. And boy, it's easy to raise your voice when this room is empty. It's way more intimidating when there's people here. It's way more fun when it's empty. Because you don't have to be afraid. You You can just let it out. Jesus is showing up at Passover. What's the point of Passover? What's the point? To remember what God did. To remember how God set them free, how God delivered them, right? Delivered them from certain death, led them through the waters of baptism, took them to the holy mountain where God gave them a new covenant. Jesus fulfills all of that again. And Passover is to remember when God did it the first time. But we already learned in John chapter 1 that Jesus is a vital part of even creation. He was there with God at the beginning. So do you know who was also there at Passover? The original Passover. Take a guess. Who was probably there? Jesus. He's a part of the Godhead that transformed the Passover experience. So Jesus witnesses the very first Passover. He's there as part of the triune God. And now he is a part of the people of Israel that draw near to come celebrate. He gets to go experience with his nation what it's like to honor Yahweh. And he's Yahweh. 
So when they show up to this holy feast, this holy celebration, you'd imagine thousands of people on their knees in prayer. You'd imagine a house of prayer for all nations. You'd imagine worship. You'd imagine glorification of God. You'd imagine a celebration that would look like what we read in Revelation takes place in heaven. You'd imagine this would be awe-inspiring. God's people gathering together to remember the greatest act of deliverance they've ever experienced. And Jesus shows up to celebrate this. And all he hears is, and he steps into the temple courts and there's animals everywhere. There's cattle, there's sheep, people selling doves. Doves were for the poor. There's even people sitting at tables. Come exchange your filthy Roman coins. Jewish currency available here. Come get God's holy currency before you go to the temple. And they're exchanging it at a ridiculous rate to rob the people. Jesus shows up and that is what has filled the temple courts. At Passover. Do you know what the temple courts were used for? Especially the large outer court. You see the outer court, because there was a large courtyard around the temple building. The outer court was the court of the Gentiles. And then further in, the court of the Jewish women, further in, through the next gate, the court of the Jewish men. But the outer courtyard was the Gentile court, where they could come to worship, where they were welcome to come and pray. And Jesus has to clear this market out of the temple court. The Jewish people have filled the spot that was saved for the nations to come find God. And they've filled it with this commerce, this evil, lying, thieving commerce that is stealing from the people as they come into worship. That's why you notice in the other Gospels, John doesn't record this line, but the other ones do, that Jesus says, my father's house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And look what you've turned it into instead. It's just a den of robbers and thieves. This was supposed to be their place. Look what you've done. In the book of Acts, when Peter goes to Cornelius' house and the very first Gentiles get to receive the Holy Spirit, Peter goes back to Jerusalem to tell them the story and the community's upset. Peter has to walk them through how God, God dropped this sheet from heaven to show them that it was okay that Gentiles could hear the gospel. And when they realized that God said it was okay and God gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit, then they start to rejoice. Thinking, wow, God has finally opened this all up to the Gentiles. But up to that point, they were mad because they didn't want Gentiles to have what they had. This was their holy relationship. This was their building. And they'd driven Gentiles out of it. And God is trying to bring them back in. Jesus drives them out. Verse 15, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, sheep, cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. To those who sold the doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered 
that it's written. This is Psalm 69 verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. This is for all those youth in youth group that think that Jesus showed up with a whip just to cause a little trouble or to be a little violent. I love when this story comes up. Because one of the youth in particular loves to joke about this. Jesus came whipping people. And Jesus, it's like, no, like, Jesus wasn't out, you money changers, and he's whipping them on the back. It's not Jesus losing his temper. It's not even being violent. It doesn't endorse us, you know, to be violent to our friends. You're not following God's law, and all of a sudden kids in the high school are whipping each other. Jesus did it, so I can too. It's zeal for his house. God is so passionate about his worship being pure that this sin that's invaded needs to be purified. And that, that zeal for that honest worship is driving Jesus to just clean the house out. So he drives all these animals out. He tips the tables. Literally and figuratively, he's tipping it all upside down. He's tipping it all upside down. Verse 18, though, is the response of the Jewish leaders. What Jesus did was he challenged the status quo. He went into a system that they were used to and that the Jewish leaders were doing nothing to take apart. They were okay with this. They'd given their blessing to it because none of them had stopped it. This was how they did worship. This lying to people, this stealing their currency, this selling these animals at an exorbitant rate and doing it in Jewish currency though, so they'd have to exchange more Roman currency for Jewish currency and then get stolen from along the way. This was how they did it. And Jesus shows up and he tips the status quo upside down. And do you know what happens when anybody tries to do something like that? It doesn't go well. Take a look at what they say in verse 18. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, Jesus, to come in here and flip our tables upside down? Who do you think you are to come in here and chase out our animals? Who are you? Oh, you're some teacher from some small town. Really? And you've what? You've got, you've got 12 friends that follow you around and write down notes when you talk? Fantastic. Who do you think you are? This is our temple. This is our worship. We are the chief priests. We are the elders. We are the teachers. Show us a sign. What authority, O Holy One? Are you a prophet of the Old Testament? Give us a sign. Have you been sent by Yahweh? What, are you a member of the Sanhedrin? Are you part, a part of the royal court of elders of the nation of Israel? Did we miss something? Where did you go to school? Who is your rabbi that you followed all those years to train? What authority? Give us a sign. Come on, give us something. Oh, holy one, who do you think you are? Jesus could have responded with so many different things. But this is how Jesus responds. This is verse 19. Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. 
destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Remember where he's standing. Like, take a look behind him, right? Like, take a look at the beautiful stonework, all cut and laid just perfectly. Decades and decades it took to carve these stones by hand to make sure that they all fit just right. He's standing in front of God's holy temple. Like the walls, the structures, the gates, the staircases. This was started when they came back from Babylon generations ago. And then Herod devoted himself to finishing it. And Herod spent decades getting it finished. It's the most grand and beautiful thing the nation's ever done. It's the holiest. It's covered in gold. There's nothing greater than this structure and this compound and these walls and these gates. This is it. And Jesus, standing in the midst of all of that, says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again on the third day. Go ahead. Because what the people had missed and that they needed to see was that sanctuary back there behind him. God does not dwell in houses made by men. God has chosen a tabernacle in his one and only son. See, the temple built off the, like, the example given by the tabernacle was all just a shadow, we learn in the book of Hebrews, of the sanctuary in heaven. It was just a shadow of the real thing. It wasn't the real thing. But it was to lead people to it. It was an example. It was foreshadowing of the real sanctuary where they would really worship. There was nothing holy about this building. The Holy One was standing right in front of them. The presence of God dwelling in human form, just feet in front of them. They could reach out and touch him. And through this, he's exclaiming, I am the sanctuary. Destroy this sanctuary and I'll bring it right back. Jesus, why do you have the authority to turn upside down how we meet with God and worship God? Who do you think you are? Jesus goes, I am the way you meet with God and worship God. I am him. Of course I have the way to tell you. Of course I have the authority to dictate what worship should look like, how you draw near to Yahweh. He's here. What happens in the next chapter of John? He meets with Nicodemus, the teacher. Right, Nicodemus says, how, how do we enter into this kingdom? I'm a teacher of Israel and I'm just not sure. How do we enter in? Jesus goes, you need to be reborn. It's not just a better life. It's not Nicodemus following the laws of Moses and improving your life. It's giving it up to gain it up again. Like it's, it's brand new life. Nicodemus goes, we have to go into the womb one more time? Jesus goes, no. It's through the sacrifice of God's own son because he loved the world so much he'd give up his only begotten son. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus meets with who? The woman at the well. They have this incredible interaction. And then Jesus reveals that he knows how many husbands she's had and that the current man's not her husband. She gets illuminated to the fact that Jesus is a holy man. And what's the very first question? She asks Jesus when she realizes he's holy, that he's a prophet. She looks at him and says, where's the right place to worship God? Is it here on the mountain? 
Here in Samaria, or is it at that great temple, that building in Jerusalem? Where are we supposed to worship? Because I'm confused. The Jews say here, the Samaritans say here. Where are we supposed to do it? See, that was the question she wanted answers to. And Jesus says, a time is coming soon when it won't be about whether you're on this mountain, where you're there in Jerusalem at the big golden building. Because true worship is done in spirit. It's not about where you are. It's about the God that you're worshiping. It's about your heart. It's about worshiping God himself, not about coming to the building and bowing down to the building and the structure and the commerce and the rituals. It was about coming before the king. See, people wanted to know this. And Jesus is trying to show them. It had nothing to do with the building. The king was right in front of them. Why could Jesus drive the animals out of the court? Because soon he was going to die for the sins of the people. And another animal would never need to die again. They would never be needed again. Because soon Jesus would take their place forever. It's pretty neat when you think about this story in just a little bit of a bigger picture, isn't it? Let's finish the last little bit of scripture. This is verse 20. They replied to Jesus, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. You see, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and they believed the scripture. They believed the words he had spoken. It all made sense later. Because he was talking about himself. Even the disciples were confused. Like, are we going to knock the building down? There's only 12 of us. How are we going to put it back? Those stones are huge. How are we going to put them back? Jesus dies and the disciples go, oh, he was the dwelling place of the Almighty. It wasn't about that building. I get it. How does this apply to you and me? What are the questions for us? Because let's not just get lost in reading this and absorbing this information and not thinking, where does this fit with Bridgeway? Darren, this is about those kids that bring the chocolate-covered almonds and they sell them in the foyer for $2 a box. And how dare they? It's commerce in God's temple. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> Calm down. I don't, I don't quite think that this story is attacking those kids. I think this story is about people perverting what worship was supposed to look like. So I'd say just be gentle, maybe buy a box of those chocolate-covered almonds. Like, I don't think we need to just shame the kids. But no, we're not running, a, we're not running a, a commercial business in the midst of the sanctuary. Something was getting in the way of their worship. Something was keeping the poor from being able to worship God. Their money wasn't worth enough. Can you imagine being a poor family having to exchange your coins after a week of travel to the temple to find out that you've been robbed and your Roman coins are worth almost nothing in Jewish coins. You can't afford that cow. You can't afford that sheep. You're forced to buy a dove because you can't afford anything else. What's getting in the way of our worship? Because that was getting in the way of theirs. What's the distraction The other question is, what would be the status quo that would be getting in the way? They saw this as normal. 
Can you imagine that if they sold animals in the temple courts for years and years and years, you would have grown up coming to the temple and hearing the sound of the cows. Like you're like, oh, we're almost at the temple. Hey, we're here. Like that was normal to them. They weren't used to hearing prayer in the temple courts because they just heard these animals all the time. That was it. Can you imagine what the temple courts were like once Jesus drove the animals out? For the very first time, for the very first time in some people's lives, what did the temple court sound like? It went quiet. So quiet that a person could almost pray for the very first time. It was quiet enough to pray maybe. How weird would that have been if you grew up with the sound of all these animals, thousands of them maybe in the temple courts. And now, silence. What do we do? Do we, do we pray or something? Like what do we, Jesus is like, yes. What did we grow up with in church that was actually a distraction from what it was supposed to be? Like you're so used to the sound of the cattle that you don't realize it was supposed to be a house of prayer. What have we become so accustomed to? Like in your life, here in this church family, what have we become so accustomed to that we don't even realize it's actually hindering us from what this was supposed to look like? What your Christian life was supposed to look like? I'm so busy, I don't really have time to, to read and pray. I'm so busy. I'm so involved in so many things. I just don't have the time. Imagine, what would Jesus say to that? Then get rid of the things. No, they're important. They're things for my family. They're things for my community. They're important things. Are they getting in the way of your worship of God? Yeah, you know. Life's hectic. Um, get, get rid of some of those things. And pray. <laughs> but we would never say that to each other. That would be mean. Like, what do you expect? Do you want me to, to hold your hand as you sin and say, it's okay, just keep sinning. It's all right. No, if a kid runs into the street, you run out and you grab his hand, he might or might not get a spank on the bum. Who knows, right? Who knows? You bring him off the street and you go, that's not okay, man. Goes, Dad, come on. What are the odds a car is going to hit me? You go, no, you can't walk on the street. But we're okay of letting things get in the way of our worship. So the question is, how are you going to take it to Jesus? Are you going to take it to him or are you going to let it linger? Because now as you start to identify these things in your heart that have gotten in the way of what this is supposed to look like, we either deal with it or we don't. Right? We either admit, okay, there are things in my life that get in the way of worship, but I'm okay with that. There's things in Bridgeway that get in the way of us achieving our mission but we've always done it that way. It's okay. Do you take it to Jesus or do you allow it to stay? Do you drive the cattle out or do you just leave the cattle there because it's simpler? I don't know what it is exactly. What is the thing in your own life? Where's the thing that you see in us as a corporate family that we've allowed to linger that has now become the great hindrance? There could be lots of things. Could be ministries. Could be practices or traditions. It could be things that we do and we don't even think about it anymore. 
But the question is, has your church experience become more about you than about him? Because if it has, that probably answers the question for you right away. This, this hour and a half long production that we put on, is it about you or is it about him? Are the broken, the hurting, are the sinners, the prostitutes, the drug addicts, are they welcome here in the front row? Well, I'd rather not. They're kind of, they're kind of dirty and questionable. I don't know. So is this about God or about you? Well, I just, I want to be comfortable. I want my kids to be comfortable. I, I, wouldn't, want, just, I wouldn't want a homeless person to walk in off the street. That'd just be very distracting. Oh, okay. Yeah, it would distract you because you're the focus of this experience. Oh, okay. Well, that's clear. Good. Good to know. You go home, the pastor, he did this, he did that. You know, the music, we did this, we did that. You go home and go, that children's church, there's no volunteers this week. Don't people care about us? Church isn't done the way I like it the best. I just wish it was a little different. Because I wish that it met my needs. I wish that it scratched my back the way that I wanted. I wish that... I don't know what to tell you. It happens. It happens in youth group. Well, I really wish that we played more games. I really wish that the Bible study was shorter. I really wish that we didn't have to do that prayer time. I really wish... Why do you really wish that? Well, because this is the way I like it. Okay? Well, what's youth group about? Well, it's about God. Is it? (laughs) Okay, why do you keep treating it like it's all about you? Oh, I'm going to tell the elders or thing or two at that church meeting. Oh, I'm going to tell them. What are you going to tell them? Well, that they need to think about me. Okay. Okay. I'm just saying, like, as we, as we prepare for things like this, we just need to take a moment to quiet our hearts and say, am I fighting for God in this situation or am I fighting for myself? Am I fighting for what I want the most or am I fighting what would glorify him and bring him the most credit and honor and worship in our community? They just linger in this for a moment. I know it's uncomfortable. You don't want to think about this. You just wish the pastor would just pray and get off the stage and we could go home, but this means something to us. Like, where are we going as a church? We're in the midst of a huge transition. We need to figure out where we're going. Where are we going to aim the ship? What are we going to do? Like, we're a big family. You're not, I don't get to make that decision. We make the decision together. What are we going to do? But if we choose that, the new direction or whatever, the new focus we want to put on ours, we hire the next pastor. We really hope that he's really good at this. Why? Because that's what I would like the most. Is this about you? Well, I really hope that to come here, to be part of our church family, everyone has to become a member or they can't volunteer. It's like, whoa, okay. Are we, like, are we making space for people? Has it become about us? Like, let's just be careful. Let's ask these questions, right? Well, to come to church, they need to have their vaccines. We're not going to let people in unless they've had it, right? We're not just going to let them in. Hold on. Ask yourself the question. Has this just become about us? 
Or is this still about him? We wouldn't want them to come in and accidentally get saved now. I'm just saying, like, let's just slow down and let's ask ourselves these questions. If it's really about him, where do we have to be careful to not make it about us? Because it can. It can so quickly. It wasn't the church that was the way to heaven. Jesus didn't say the church is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said that he is. It's through him. So if Darren being up here on stage is a distraction to our worship, then I need to come down. If having a big worship team is a distraction, it needs to come down. If having fancy lights and screens, if that just becomes a distraction, it should come down. Like maybe we just need to come into this room and turn off the sound system and just pray together for an hour. People are going to hate it because it's not fun. And yet it's going to change people's lives because it's solely about Jesus and not about anything else. Lisa goes up and gets baptized, tells her testimony. You know what that testimony was not about? How amazing the church experience has been to her, how much it's blessed her, how much her whole relationship with God has just poured blessing upon blessing on her life. No, her whole testimony was about what God has done. How God has removed shame. How God has got the victory. How he has changed her heart. How God has won in all these areas of hurt. And as her family sits here in the front row, we're trying to, we're trying to offer them Jesus. We're not trying to offer them a fantastic musical experience because a musical experience doesn't. Doesn't do what? It doesn't save you. So why do we fight about the musical experience when it doesn't save you? I'm leaving this church if it's not really the musical experience. That's what you'll die for? Will you die for Jesus? Well, no. Music, I, like, I'm, just, I'm just saying slow down and ask yourself, what did her family need to hear? The gospel of Jesus. And if anything else is getting in the way of them hearing that, Let's look at what might need to just get pushed off to the side for now. Because it might just be a cow making noise in the temple courts, distracting people from prayer. Right? John thought this was important enough that he put this at the beginning of his gospel. They couldn't miss this. This was vital. This was huge. Why? The Jews had lost their temple. The Romans had destroyed it in 70 AD. It was gone. There was no more priesthood, sacrifices, temple building to go to at Passover. The Romans destroyed it. John is most likely living in Ephesus at this time. He's not even in the Holy Land anymore. And the Jews are so lost. They have, they have nowhere to go on Passover. They're so lost. It's, it's been destroyed from them, taken from them. And John says, you don't need it. Jesus is the sacrificial blood. He is the cleansing water. Jesus is the temple. He's the sanctuary. You don't need all that stuff anymore. You don't need the lights and the smoke and the lasers in the show. <laughs> You need him. So let's make sure as we chart the course for our church going forward, that we chart it pointing at him. Because if you, if you build this church to focus at you, if you build it to focus at me, we're just aiming ourselves at an iceberg. Time for a benediction. I love you. I want you to know that so clearly. 
I try to tell that to Cooper too when you need to discipline him or just even just give him a tough lesson or a tough warning. The reason I'm pulling you off the street, Cooper, is because I love you. If a car hits you and you're riding your bike, it'll hurt you and I love you. That's why I'm saying you can't ride your bike on the street, buddy. But dad, if you loved me, you would just let me. No, Cooper, you have to understand. I love you. Don't ride your bike on the street. I want you to know how much you're loved and cared for. That's why sermons like this are so necessary. And for me and my own heart this week. Let's pray together, all right? Father in heaven, um, there's nothing more that I could offer you than all of myself. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. That's what I'm trying to do each day as I come before you in prayer and read my Bible is just to continually offer you myself. My whole life, it's yours. The throne of my heart, I don't sit on that anymore. It's you. This life isn't about me. Church isn't about what I get out of it. My, my work, my employment, my home life, raising my family. You come first. It's about you. I come second. I have to keep fighting this battle daily to make you first and me second. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would sweep over this church and that would become the cry of our hearts. Like in the most honest way possible, that all of this would become about you and that we would take a back seat. Because boy, if if all of this is about me, if all of this is about us, let's shut it down. Let this be the last Sunday we worship in this building if it's just going to be about us. Let's shut it down and lock the doors and go home. Because that just makes me sick. Let's make this about you, God. I want my life to be about you. I want Cooper and Jesse and Austin to grow up and love you more than they love me. I want them to say, man, my God is so amazing and dad's pretty nice. But man, God is so cool. Lord, as we go into even a little church meeting where we talk about the future, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would become just the focus of our compass. Like as we steer this whole ship, it would be about you trying to be obedient to your word, listening to your Holy Spirit. Jesus, as you release people from this room out into the mission field, wherever you send them, whether they work at an implement dealership, right? Whether they work at the bank. Oh, Jesus. Whether they build houses and skyscrapers or whether they just sweep the streets, whether they walk the halls of Riverview and encourage their friends, if that is where you've placed them, Lord Jesus, open their eyes to see the mission field right in front of them. Help them to knock on that door, to pray for that person. But God, I fully believe that's going to require me and my church family, to surrender everything. We're going to have to give up the animals, the money-changing tables that we love so much in our church. We're going to have to give those up. And it's going to hurt to give some of those things up. But you might call us to. Would you please, please, Lord Jesus, make my heart soft enough to be willing to give that up for you. I imagine that's not going to be easy. Lord Jesus, I love this church family and I know they love you. I know they love you and I've seen it so clearly. So I ask that your spirit would unite us in hope and in peace and in power to make a difference in this world. Would once again, Lord Jesus, 
Once again, we rally around you. Would the walls of division in our church crumble? Would the walls of hurt crumble? Would people come together in repentance and restore broken relationships? Would that happen, Jesus, now? Not in five years from now. Could that happen now? Could we learn to love you more than we love ourselves and work together? You're amazing. You're amazing. That's why I keep coming back to this place, God, you're amazing. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. And I love that I can do that together with this church family. That we together are going to follow you all the days of our life. Yeah, we will. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.